Welcome to the session titled The Toolkit Talks. Um, it's no secret, but we have been um, promoting, quite frankly, Stacy Klingler and I, the Toolkit um, series, the Small Museum Toolkit. But we've also created a series called The Toolkit Talks. And each time around, we dig into some of the topics that come out of the book series. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more in a minute. My name is Cinnamon Catlin Legutko, and I am the CEO of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine. I have been working in small museums for well over a decade or more. I can't even count anymore, but it really is the place where I do my best work and enjoy my work. Um, however, the museum I'm at now is not classified as a small museum. It's more of a mid-sized museum, but I'm happy to say that all of the tricks and tools and um, strategies I employed in a small museum, I am employing at a medium-sized museum to great success. So I have said quite often that others have as well that um, the museum community can learn a lot from small museums because we do a great deal of work with a whole lot less um, and I think the whole field can learn from that. Um, my job today is to be facilitator and to keep us on time, um, but our speakers are really going to dig into three topics, um, collections care basics, advocacy, and visitor studies. And to do that, we have Barbara Waldron, Stacy Klingler, and Scott Carley, and they will introduce themselves. Um, I'll let them tell you who they are. Um, but my job also is to tell you a little bit more about the toolkit. We have a little version right here. So if you want to look at it later, you certainly may. And the Altamira booth has them um, for sale during this conference at a great discount. Hmm. There we go. Presenters. Yours is slow. There we go. <laughs> what is the small museum? It's the end of the day. Oh, I should also say we are intending for this to be super casual. So if you take me seriously, you're really going to be disappointed. So don't do that. Um, <laughs> we wish that we could bring in some couches and just relax because it feels like that kind of day. And quite frankly, when you work in a small museum, you need that time to relax. So seriously, if, if we think we're funny, just laugh with us and it'll be okay. Um, but like I said, um, I want to tell you a little bit about the Small Museum Toolkit. These beautiful colors behind me represent the six book series that um, Stacy and I conceived together. Uh, Five-year project that was published this time last year, wasn't it? It's whizzed by. Um, but the idea was that we wanted to come up with a book series that gives you a thumbnail sketch, maybe a little more information about topics you need to have at hand working in a small museum. I think it's safe to say that most of us who find ourselves working in a small museum environment don't know everything, but we sure need to have a relationship to all the cost possibilities in the museum environment. Um, some of the areas we may become experts in through work, but certainly we need to know a little something maybe about historic preservation, as well as educating the public, as well as maybe the plumbing <laughs> to your restroom. You need to just understand how to be a jack of all trades and where to get resources. So what we wanted to do is put together this compendium of, of quick reference um, that were relevant to small museum workers, um, came from the voices primarily of small museum people as well as those who have worked really closely with small museums throughout their career. Over 30 authors contributed. So we feel like it was a great success in that alone that 30 people could carve out the time in their busy, busy careers um, to, to write something for us. And that's who you have represented today, our authors from the series. I have to say too that while we are going to shamelessly promote the toolkit series, this is not for profit for us. We, <laughs> we really aren't going to make a buck on this one. We really were passionate about the field and what the field needs, and small museums truly don't have enough resources that speak to them directly and can cherish them um, and lift them up and help them do their work. We also are really passionate about shortcuts. All of us, I think, in any walk of life in the museum field can always say we need more money. We really do but we also need shortcuts more than anything in small museums, and we hope to bring shortcuts to you as well. So let me just take you through some other resources really fast that have been an, um, an outgrowth. We have now created a Small Museum Toolkit blog, because I bet there are times working in a small museum where you feel quite lonely, whether it's been a board meeting that didn't go so well, or you're the only one working for a week at a time, <laughs> and you'll see visitors and that's it, but there's nobody to really bounce ideas off of. So you probably are starving at times for a community. And um, the Small Museums Committee of ASLH, which I've been a part of, Stacy has just departed as chair, um, and uh, Maggie Marconi is the new chair of that committee. 
have really been conscious of building this community. Um, and we'll hear a little bit more in a minute of what they've been doing. But what Stacy and I have come up with is a small museum toolkit blog. We've been getting the authors to put little pieces out there. We hope we can get some longevity out, this, out of this and really keep people talking and give you some further in-depth um, pieces of information as you're going through your daily work life. And of course, we're on Facebook. We need more friends. I was almost embarrassed to put this up there, 71. Quite frankly, we haven't been promoting the Facebook page that much. But if you are a Facebook user, please um, be sure to um, like us because as we post on the blog, it gets communicated out through Facebook and other places. So we really need followers and we need you to recommend to others so that we can really build this community. Um, and then the other resource is the Small Museum's online community. Stacey, you want to pop up here with the mic and tell them what that's about? gonna raise it up a little bit here maybe no not so much I just like to lean down and say hello <laughs> we may do a little singing and dancing later okay <laughs> standing up straight uh, the small museum online community has been around for about six months it is a combination social network blog resource list uh, it's we do blog posts about all sorts of topics. There is a conversation area and a member area where you can send um, email to folks who are in small museums. You can look at other people's profiles and see what they consider themselves experts in and contact them. Uh, you can also look at the resource list, which are resources that the committee gathered over about eight years of conversations at meetings all around the states um, of great resources for small museums. So that's under the resource tab there. Um, and so it's just a nice place to connect with folks, uh, ask questions, have conversations, and uh, we hope that it continues to grow. It's got about 350 members right now. So apparently we need to hold the mic, which I don't know if y'all are comfortable with, but we're going to have to. Um, so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Scott Carley, who is with the Alaska State Museum in Juneau, Alaska, and he's going to talk to you about a collections care basics. And the idea is that each author is going to give you around three really tangible topics to take away. It may not feel like a one, two, three moment, but we want to give you something that's very practical takeaway that you could implement when you return, maybe in a couple weeks, but we want it to be accessible. Um, so if you have any questions, be sure to ask. We also hope at the end of our presentations, we'll have some Q&A, but also we're looking for some ideas from you, and um, that's where the microphone's going to get really complicated, but we hope you'll play along. Scott. Oh yes, my reminder, thank you. We, um, evaluations are on your seats, and the idea today for this session is for you to complete them and leave them in your seats, and they will collect them. There won't be anybody at the door to collect them. Thank you for that, Scott. Why don't you come on up here? And what do you need me? I thought I did. Maybe I didn't. I'll let you get this up. Well, he puts his um, presentation up. On your seats are the Small Museum Toolkit order form that Stacy reminded me of. And um, it also has all the books and the chapter titles. So you can find out a little bit more about what it's about. And like I said earlier, you can go to the Altamira booth and see it for yourself if you don't see it here. And there are great discounts. That form gives you 20%, but if I'm not mistaken, the booth is giving you 30%. So if you want it now, there's a bigger deal. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Scott. Okay. Thank you, Cinnamon. All right, so I'm not going to hold this because there's too many things up here, but um, is, this, is this coming through on the mic? My wife says that um, I have one of the loudest voices that she knows of, and that, that, but that's my, one of my superpowers, my loud voice. Maybe it's my only superpower. But um, anyway, uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you all for braving the trip up here, you know, through all the back, <laughs> back hallways and stairwells and everything of this convention center. Um, I'm Scott Carley. I'm Curator of Museum Services at Alaska State Museum. I, uh, in a former, uh, former life, I was a conservator, so I, my training is in conservation. And uh, before I got into field services, uh, that's what I did. I was a bench conservator. So I approach all of my museum philosophies and everything from the, op the standpoint of the object. So a lot of what I have to say is really sort of gathered up over the years. Um, my present, in my present job, I do outreach for the state of Alaska for small museums. I have about 80 museums that um, I provide services for, technical support. Uh, I have a small grant that I give a thing. Um, my, the, 
the chapter in my book is, it, it's a distillation of my experiences and my philosophy about working in museums. Um, it's not meant to be a complete encyclopedia of collections care. So if you read through it, um, it, it hopefully will give you some tips, uh, some ideas, but it's not, it's not the be all and end all. Um, and that was kind of our instructions from from the uh, from the editors, uh, you know, it had to be short. We had we had a page limit, uh, but I feel that what what is in there from a conservation standpoint or from a collections care standpoint, I f I feel like that's what at least that everybody should know. Okay, so um, one of the the only instructions that um, that Cinnamon gave me about this talk was that I was uh, supposed to talk about three things, uh, three ideas that you could take home with you. So. Um, I'm actually going to talk about six. <laughs> I don't follow instructions well. Okay. Uh, so there's a couple of principles that I laid out in the beginning of my chapter, and these are this is my philosophy about uh, museums and collections care. And uh, it's just a simple sentence. Uh, preventive conservation is the most co cost-effective way to care for collections. And, and I firmly believe that, even as a conservator, uh, I do believe that it really, preventive conservation is the way we should be approaching things. And I also believe that uh, collections care is on a continuum. So inside is better than outside. Uh, on a shelf is better than on the floor. In an enclosure is better than out in the open. So even if you feel like you have you know, really bad collections care or your storage area isn't optimal, just having it inside your museum, you've done a tremendous amount for uh, that object, okay? Even though your, you know, your museum might not be climate controlled, still not having it outside is, uh, you know, a huge uh, boon for that object. So um, another thing that I wanted to say was that uh, if you can't bring it inside, maybe you could put a roof over it. Uh, but if you can't put a roof over it, then maybe you could put it up on a cement pad or something, and I've been dealing with that a lot in Alaska, um, a lot of outdoor equipment, big mining equipment um, that they use to, you know, blast hillsides and things like that. Uh, and one, one museum that I'm working with up in Sutton, Alaska, north of, of Palmer, uh, we gave them a grant just to build platforms, cement platforms underneath these big mining equipment to keep it from sinking into the ground. And that's a preservation method or measure, so just keep that in mind. Okay, so um, I'm actually going to go by my notes a little bit so I don't just rattle on. Um, so how do you care for your collections? Well, uh, the start of caring for your collections is knowing what the threats are to your collection, what, what is going to happen to them. And if you go online or over the years, there have been many, many lists of the threats to collections, and they're all a different number of them. So you might have seen 11 threats to the collections, or there's, there's actually 10 threats to collections, or nine or something. Um, and, and basically, it's all the same information. It's just kind of how they group them. And I find that I can't get my mind around 11 things. You know, I can't even get my mind around nine things. So what I did was I just sort of put a lot of them together into very large categories. And all those other lists, they would take like one of my large categories and they would break it down into the smaller categories and call those threats to collections. And that's fine. I don't really care. But I wrote the book, so I get to say how many threats to collections there are. And there are six as far as I'm concerned. Um, there is actually a seventh one, but I didn't cover it in the book because it's called inherent vice. And it's when the thing is just going to fall apart on its own, you know, like plastic or like um, cellulose nitrate negatives or something. There's not a whole lot you can do about that, you know. So I didn't consider that necessarily a threat to collection. But So uh, anyway, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through each one of these. Um, and so this is where my six. I was told to do three things. I'm going to do six. And I'm going to try and do it in, uh, in the, I'm going to try and do it close to the amount of time that I've been given. Oh, and I didn't even start. So now I get to start. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to be relaxed about this whole thing and cheat. Okay. So um, here they are. Uh, and I'm going to go through each one of them and talk about, not exhaustively, because we still want you to buy, buy the book. So I'm not going to give you all the information that's in, in the chapter. We you need to buy the book. But I wanted to give you, like, just a teaser of kind of, 
you know, like a good idea that you, that, you know, that is in the chapter that you can take home right now while you're waiting for the book to be delivered. So, um, all right, so climate, climate control. We always hear about climate control. And, um, you know, a lot of, some of you are probably in historic houses. Uh, I deal with historic houses up in, in Alaska. I also deal with small museums that are in repurposed buildings, a cabin or something like that. And they, they don't have climate control and they're not gonna get climate control. Um, and I explain a little bit about what we, what we mean exactly when we say climate control. Um, but what I wanted you to take away from this was that um, the way to deal with this in a small museum is not necessarily to worry about climate controlling your whole museum, because that can be very expensive to retrofit it. What I want you to think about is that um, if the museum can't be the box, you need to make the box smaller, okay? So if you can't climate control the whole museum, maybe you could climate control an exhibit case or a storage case, or maybe you could put that object in, in a box that is climate controlled, okay? So if, if you can't do the big box, you gotta make the box smaller. Now you can't do that for everything in your collection, so what you need to keep in mind is what artifacts are really most susceptible to climate change, and that means like swings in, in relative humidity or temperature or things like that. So um, really, if, if, if you look at it, the, that number isn't so huge, so it's not as daunting as it may seem. There, there are some artifacts that are very sensitive to changes in relative humidity, and others just aren't, okay? So um, what you wanna be looking for are things like skin-covered kayaks, for example, which we have a lot of up in Alaska. And these, um, these slits here, these cracks, um, those are relatively new. Those are, um, you can tell they're not, uh, if those were old and perhaps happened like down in this area before it was collected, they wouldn't have that nice, fresh, white look to them. So these have happened possibly after this artifact was collected and in the museum. So, you know, a kayak, so um, drums, for example, skin-covered drums are another example of things that, that crack. Um, what, are, what are some other examples? Um, ivory, for example. So if it's on display, you wanna try and get it into an exhibit case that is sealed. So, you, you know, you might have to build a special exhibit case, but that'll be cheaper than trying to climate control your whole, your whole museum. Um, Drums, you know, what we've started to do at the Alaska State Museum is we've started to um, pack the backs of skin-covered drums with cotton batting because cotton batting can um, give off moisture and, and uh, take in moisture faster than the drum can, so it acts as a buffering for that. So now we're going to move on to light. And I hope you can see this is, um, this is a close-up of a hat, a straw hat, that was, that was basically dyed about this color and um, has, has actually experienced a lot of fading. Uh, and this ribbon you can see is kind of bluer here than it is here. So um, let me switch to my next page. So with light, um, I kind of think of light in, a, in the museum as kind of the silent killer. It, it's always happening. We need light, that's, that's one issue. We need light to see the artifacts, but too much light causes uh, fading and damage. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that light damage is cumulative, so you know a little light over a long period of time is the same as a lot of light over a short period of time. Uh, and, um, but not all artifacts are light sensitive. So when I travel around Alaska and I go to small museums, I take a light meter with me, and often I can find within the exhibit case or within the room, I can find totally appropriate light, light levels, even in, in historic homes where there are windows and outdoor outside light coming in. But you just have to look around for it. So um, that's, that's why I would, I would advise getting a, um, a light meter. They're not that expensive. They're about 100 bucks. You can get a really good one on Amazon for about 100 bucks delivered. Um, and you need to you know, use that in your space, uh, exhibit space, and look for the light-sensitive objects. And I'm gonna tell you what most of those are. Are um, dyed textiles, for example. Colored textiles tend to be very light-sensitive. Any paper item that has color on it tends to be very sensitive. Color photographs are sensitive. Um, black and white photographs are sensitive too, but you won't notice that change uh, too much uh, over time, but um, 
those are, you know, things that have color. Now, oil paintings, the colors are really generally locked in there in their pigments, um, so they don't tend to fade as much. Um, but you can't, you know, shine unbelievable amounts of light on them. They still will fade. But the most sensitive items are paper and textiles that, are, that have color in them. So going around your museum, looking at things that are colored, you have to say, well, is this in too much light? And what is too much light? Too much light is um, you want those objects to be somewhere in the range of five to ten foot candles. And if you don't know what a foot candle is, it's explained in the chapter. You'll have to wait until you get the book. The other thing that I wanted to mention is everybody goes, oh, UV light, UV light. Everybody's talking about UV light, and it's so dangerous. And, you know, I had, I had a guy tell me at the, at the Anchorage airport, I was looking into these cases that had native artifacts, there were 2,000-foot candles. I kid you not, 2,000-foot candles. And we're talking five-foot candles is appropriate. There were 2,000-foot candles shining on these objects. And he said, oh, it won't hurt them. There's UV, there's UV filters on these windows. Well, if we look at this, 60 days exposure, no exposure with a UV filter and without a filter. So that, that image, I hope, stays with you. That yes, there is a slight difference here, but there's a huge difference between this and this, okay? So even if you have UV filters on your outdoor windows, it's the total amount of light. So you have to look at the foot candles of light coming in. Okay, pests. That's another one of the threats to collections, pests. And um, I, I talk about other, all kinds of pests. You know, some people say that humans are kind of the biggest pests in museums, but I'd still divide out human interaction with, um, with pests. Uh, but I, you know, when I moved up to Alaska 12 years ago, I'd go out to these bush museums and go, oh, we don't, have, we don't have insects. It's way too cold here for insects. Every museum has insects, believe me. Every museum. I'm just going to repeat that. Every museum has insects in it. I don't care who you are or where you are. Some museums do have more insects than others. Hawaii, for example, has a lot of issues that maybe we don't face being in the tropics. But Alaska has a lot of insects. And we trap them all the time. The important thing is to trap the insects so that you know what's running around in your museum. And it, it's called an IPM. I don't know if that term is familiar to you. IPM stands for Integrated Pest Management. It was developed from the pest control industry. It's a way of getting rid of monitoring, getting rid of insects without using a lot of pesticides. That's basically what they're trying to do. We don't generally use uh, pesticides in museums anymore, only under certain conditions. Um, so what you really need to be doing, if you're not doing it, is you need to establish an integrated pest management system, and you need to be um, monitoring for pests with insect traps like this. So um, you can look it up online. Um, in the book, it gives a very good uh, description of what integrate, integrated pest management program looks like uh, and some of the tips for it. I'm just going to show this slide. Um, this was taken by my wife. She's a conservator as well at the Alaska State Museum. And she, um, she thinks about things in a very practical way. So she has this on her blog. You can, blog her, you can find her blog, ellencarley.com. And she has an article there said that's called IPM Made Easy. So you might want to look at that. Um, but uh, what she did was she took all the bugs that are bad bugs, heritage eaters, in Alaska. These are the ones we find all the time. And she took a picture of them, and she, for reference, she showed it that it's a dime, um, because a lot of times, you know, they're big bugs, and, you know, maybe it's a bad one or maybe it's not. You can see that most of them are little. And then she has, um, on her blog, she has a description of what each one of those are, and I think that photo's in the book, too, so um, I borrowed it from her. Okay, dust. We're moving right along, aren't we? Here, let me check the time here. Moving right along. Um, so dust and pollutants, they, they are a threat to collections. Um, there's something called VOCs, volatile organic components. You'll, um, you'll hear a lot about that. Those are things that off-gas. People say, oh, well, that's going to off-gas in collections or that's going to off-gas in my, um, my exhibit case. And those are issues. I do talk about those in the chapter. But one thing that I, that I want you to take home is that dust is also uh, you know, a form of pollutant that is very damaging to collections, especially those on open display, especially natural history specimens, like this wing of an eagle tree. And I want you to see, I've cleaned this part of it right here, and all of this is dust that's layered on that. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but uh, natural history specimens and mounts that have been on display for a really long time, even after they're clean, they look really dull. And they look kind of, somebody should do something with those, right? Well, the problem is that that dust gets in, and on a very microscopic level, it, it, it causes deterioration all along those, 
um, that all along the feathers um, and on hair, and that deterioration, you can't bring that back. You know, it's, it's caused actual damage on there. I used to think of dust as being very benign, as something like, what, you know, it's just dust, who cares? But dust is actually a living biome. It actually is 40% bacteria that's alive. It's creating a whole world in there. They don't care about us, they care about them. They're like living and dying and breeding and excreting and they're, they're terraforming right on that ar artifact, right? So what I want you to take home with you is that you need to clean exhibits. You do. I mean, you, you know, you need to clean exhibits that are on open exhibits, and you need to clean exhibits that are in exhibit cases. You can't just put them on exhibit for 20 years and expect them to survive, okay? And human interaction. So this is uh, one of those. Um, you know, I, I really hope that these are exhibit props and not actual paintings, but I, I downloaded this off the internet. I think it was on The Onion um, as a sat satire about, um, you know, getting into art or whatever. But, um, you know, I condense a lot, a lot of people's lists of threats to collection contain separate issues like vandalism, theft, um, you know, mishandling and all of those. And I just looked at it all and I said, you know, all of those are us interacting with that object. And after working in museums for, I've worked in museums for over 20 years, and I can honestly say that the type of damage that happens most often, so the most frequent form of damage, is human interaction. It may not be the most catastrophic, like let's say, you know, fire or something might, might be more catastrophic, but the damage that happens most often is human interaction, and it's all preventable. So you can prevent human interaction damage. I got another slide of human interaction. Interacting with a silver bowl, you can see the thumbprint is uh, completely etched into that bowl and now, you know, to treat that, a conservator has to go and actually remove a layer of silver from that bowl to get that off. So gloves, wearing gloves would have prevented that type of damage. Um, it's all preventable. And um, what I say in the chapter is uh, the way you, you deal with human interaction is on the policy level. So you need to be writing policies and procedures that will prevent human interaction damage to your objects. And the final threat to collection is uh, disasters or emergencies. You know, some people say a, a disaster is an emergency that you can no longer control. But um, we had a disaster at the in, in, in Alaska about two years ago. It was 2009, so I guess it's three years ago now. Uh, it was the state archives. They were putting a new roof on it. Uh, they put one of those big bubbles, plastic bubbles, over the whole uh, archives, and uh, wind came up and blew the bubble away. And all the rain came in and flooded uh, 1,500 boxes of those types of sort of banker boxes, 1,500 boxes. Um, I've been, as I said, I've been working in museums for a while. I've, I've experienced five, uh, what I would say, emergencies that have risen to the level of almost disaster, or let's say five emergencies, they have all involved water, all of them. So in my 20 years, I've had five emergencies and they've all involved water. What does that mean to you? That means you're gonna, your emergency is going to involve water, okay? So you can just say that that's the number one emergency that's going to happen. You can plan for volcanoes, you can plan for earthquakes, and those are bad emergencies, and they do happen. I'm not saying they happen. But the one that's going to happen to you is going to be a water emergency. So, and even some of those, like a fire, is a water emergency. But um, so what I would suggest, the take-home message on this one is uh, that you need to be prepared for water emergencies. And how do you do that? Well, I would suggest you go out, and if you don't have the money, write a small grant for this to some organization and say, you want to buy a wet-dry vac, you want to buy at least 200 square foot of plastic sheeting, and you want to buy some duct tape. And you take the duct tape and the you put it down inside the, the um, wet dry vac and you label it for emergencies only and you put that over in the corner somewhere and that will save your butt. Because when, the, when it happens, when the roof leaks, you're going to need plastic sheeting to cover up you know, whatever isn't wet and you're going to need the wet dry vac to suck it all up and in, before you can actually take care of you know, the objects or anything like that. So the number one thing is to, you know, to take care of it quickly and get the water out of there. That'll help your, your climate to start um, reestablishing itself. Uh, and then, you know, from there, you can work up to all the scenarios of, of what to do during a, an emergency. I mean, there's even an app on your iPhone now uh, from 
about emergency response from Heritage Preservation. It's great. So you can download that app and it'll tell you what to do in a water emergency. But what you need to have on hand at a minimum is uh, some way of dealing with it uh, right instantly. So that's it. That was um, what I want to tell you about. There is a handout that is um, called um, The Basics of Collections Care. And I've outlined the six uh, threats to collections and I've outlined the six sort of suggestions that I've had uh, that I've given you today of sort of what to do with it. Um, the one that's going around isn't that one. It's already on the, the table, but are on your chairs. So anyway, thank you for your attention. Next at the podium will be Barbara Waldron, Walden, who is um, currently with the Community of Christ Historic Sites Foundation, um, who will be talking about advocacy. What Stacy's passing out are uh, some of the tips that I'm going to be talking about this afternoon. Uh, when I think of threats to the collection, it reminds me of when I began as a rookie site director of a small museum in Northeast Ohio. It was my first year, and I ended up accidentally uh, mounting or hanging in the women's bathroom an original painting, and I didn't know it. It looked just like all of the museum store reproductions, and I thought that would be a nice decoration. and. Uh, turned out it ended up being the original painting and so I quickly removed it, um, but one of my more embarrassing moments in, in my career in the museum field. So now that I've erased all credibility with this audience, uh, allow me to talk about advocacy. I wasn't a curator for very long for obvious reasons. Uh, the chapter that I did for the museum toolkit uh, is called Like a Good Neighbor, Community Advocacy for Small Museums. Uh, now, I'm the director of the Community of Christ Historic Sites Foundation, which has a family of five museum sites. They're all small museums. Um, very few paid staff. Most of the historic sites don't have any paid staff, but rely heavily on volunteers. Uh, today, I thought I'd focus on uh, the Kirtland Temple, which is in the lower, lower left-hand um, picture. It's a small museum located in Northeast Ohio. It's called the Kirtland Temple because it's the first Mormon temple. Uh, you can't come all the way to Salt Lake City without hearing a little bit of Mormon history. So let me give you just a backstory about this site. Uh, it's located just outside of Cleveland. Uh, there's 40 to 45,000 visitors that come to the site. Small staff, there's three and a half uh, paid staff and a lot of volunteers that we rely on. Uh, geographically, we have visitors that come from every state in the country and six of the seven continents. Uh, over 50 services are held in the temple. There isn't a congregation that meets there regularly, but groups passing through ask to hold services there. There's a few weddings that take place out in the gardens, but for the most part, it's a historic site with a small museum. Historically, I mentioned it was the first Mormon temple. It was a community that was built up in the 1830s. Uh, by 1837, there were 2,000 people living in the community by 1839, uh, there was only 100 remaining. So it was a short bit of Mormon history, uh, a lot of Kirtland community history. Uh, for our visitors that come through, uh, architecturally, uh, if you're an architectural enthusiast, you really have to go to this site. Um, this is the first and second floors. It's called the lower court and the upper court. The lower court serves as a sanctuary, and there are pulpits. There's nine pulpits on each end of the room. They're tiered pulpits. And the neat thing is that the pews are not uh, attached to the floor. They're benches that can move back and forth, so there's really no front or back to the sanctuary. And rather than having a balcony for the second floor, they created a whole separate assembly room, which would have served as classroom space. That's what you see on the, the right-hand side. Uh, we also have windows on every wall of the building, so all four walls of a room contains windows, so a lot of that natural light that destroys collection comes pouring through uh, this historic site. So in the 1830s, it was used as a house of worship. It was used as a high school, as a place for learning, and it was used for administrative offices. And today we continue that uh, at the site. 
So Kirtland, Ohio, the community that surrounds the temple is a very small bedroom community. Uh, there's about 7,500 residents that live there. It's home to a small library, a civic center, a K through 12 public school system, and about 30% of Kirtland's total acreage, acreage is parks, uh, educational facilities, public institutions, and churches. A lot of nonprofits that are in the area. It hosts 10 churches, and of those 10 churches, three of them have Latter-day Saint heritage. So they found that at this community, um, there were really two core audiences that the site focused on. There were the Latter-day Saint audiences, the denominations that seemed to come year after year. There wasn't a lot of publicity to get them there. They just came year after year. The one community that we weren't getting at was the local community. Uh, and that was something that they began working hard on not too long ago. So the first point that I have, or tip, is that community service is essential to any small museum. Uh, it is essential. If you want the community to connect with your museum or uh, to see the history that you have as something that resonates within them, you really need to uh, be a good community member. Uh, it needs to not be all about your site. You need to get within your community and get involved with some of the other organizations. Uh, and Kirtland, what the staff got involved in was the Kirtland Kiwanis. They became board members on that. They became active in the high school as advisors for the Kirtland Key Club. They were active in the middle school or the junior high as advisors for Builders Club. Uh, they joined the local senior centers and they volunteered for other organizations. Um, they began working with the Cleveland Museum of Art on distance learning projects. So a lot of the volunteer work that they did wasn't directly related to the museum, but they became familiar faces out in the community. People connected those faces to the site and to the, the history. They became more comfortable with it. A second tip that I want to share with you is discovering a need within your community. Uh, about 25 years ago in Kirtland, there was a tragic event that took place. Uh, where a religious leader who was a part of a, a cult um, became involved with uh, killing a small family in that community. Certainly not anything that any community would wish upon them, but here for Kirtland, which was this small, intimate, innocent community, uh, to be associated with a cult, let alone a cult murder, was horrific for the community. Here they were this quiet community and they were just launched onto a national scene where on the Donahue show, they're interviewing people from the community. It was just an awful event. So for the people connected to the site, they quickly realized that there was a need within this community to not only have unification, but there was a pastoral need that was there. And so they began developing something that was called the Kirtland Ministerial Alliance. They realized that within the community, there were smaller communities, civic organizations, religious organizations that weren't communicating with one another. So by establishing this association of civic leaders and religious leaders, they not only enhanced the communication, they not only helped build a better community, but it was a way that they could have these diverse communities connecting on a regular basis, one with another. That included a, a monthly luncheon. Uh, they come together for, um, for fundraising, for a variety of activities, but it really enhances the relationships of those leaders within the community. Uh, this is a picture of a Thanksgiving service that happens every year in the temple uh, that that ministerial alliance hosts. Advocate for the preserving and sharing of community heritage. This is an opportunity to partner with like-minded organizations and you becoming that go-to person within your community when it relates to history. Um, for the folks in Kirtland, there were appointments to the Kirtland Cemetery Board. There's always somebody from that site that sits on the Kirtland Cemetery Board. Partnering with the Lake County Historical Society and cemetery and church tours, they created package tours with fellow organizations, uh, and they assisted some of the state parks in their interpretation. They just went beyond the, the building. I think having a small visitor center at that time forced them to get off the site and get into the community. I think so often we feel closed in at our sites and we become so self-centered, if you will. And one thing we learned from this Kirtland site was that by getting out into the community, there's nothing but benefits there for you. Explore the role of community education in your institution. Uh, this church, if you will, this historic church soon became a canvas for local high school art teachers. They invited the high school students over 
to use it as their, their own canvas. It was partnering with Career Development Program at the Kirtland High School. They realized that was a need, and they invited uh, the students over to have an opportunity to develop their, their career skills. Uh, community service hours with the high school seniors. Uh, they began developing an annual exhibit with a local high school, and even the high school choir teacher became involved by hosting a concert each year. So it's just finding the needs within your community and seeing how your site can meet those needs. And consider opportunities everywhere. Uh, this was an eye-opener for the people in Kirtland. They were so focused on the museum and the site itself that they neglected even the, the gardens as an opportunity to connect with their community. Uh, they ended up developing and landscaping the gardens, which helped bring in volunteers who weren't interested in history, but they loved to get knee-deep in dirt and yank out weeds. Um, for some, they found that quite therapeutic. They had a lot of weeds in this garden, so they invited the whole community out to yank as they will. Um, that garden space became a place for the elementary school teachers to teach science and bugs. I never thought we could connect history and bugs. Scott showed us how to do that this afternoon, that's <laughs> for sure. Um, but they could come over with their magnifying glasses and learn about all the different insects in the gardens. The gardens began to be used as reading places uh, for the elementary school students. And we also found that even in the evenings, the dog walkers and the couples who needed a place to go uh, found themselves coming over to the gardens once we built in those sidewalks for them to feel, feel at home. In 2007, uh, after a huge fundraising campaign, uh, we began uh, the building of a new visitor center. And in the building of the new visitor center, we wanted the community to be involved in that so that Civic and Religious Leaders Association that was established 25 years ago came in handy when we wanted to engage the community as to what do they want out of this visitor center. We didn't want it to be a visitor center just for our Latter-day Saint visitors. We wanted the community to feel like they were involved in it. So we invited the leaders in and had a, a huge seminar that took weeks where they told us what they wanted. And in the beginning, it was about the physical design and layout of the museum. That was one of our goals. The other was the theme and content of the exhibits. And what we found was that the community wanted to have a voice in all things. They wanted to talk about the garden landscapes because they go walking through the gardens at night. They wanted to talk about the interpretive plan and the story that was being told because they wanted their story to be told as well. Uh, and they assisted in the exterior signage and, and lighting. There were things brought up in those meetings that we had never even thought about, and so we were grateful to have those connections. Uh, after the new visitor center was built, we wanted to, um, to say thank you to the community for all of their support in those meetings and the activities that they had done at the site. So we were sure to involve the mayor in the, in the dedication and the ribbon cutting. We were sure to have the Kirtland Kiwanis to be the first people to dine in the theater. Uh, the Ministerial Alliance was the first people to use the classroom for their activities, and it was all of those firsts that really helped build those relationships. And here is a picture of the local congressman advocating uh, a heritage area within our county. So with all of that said, with all of those little tips of things that we had done over the, the last two decades, uh, it should have come as no surprise that when the city of Kirtland was redeveloping their own signage, they ended up using the Kirtland Temple as an icon or symbol for the history of the community. Uh, and here's just a couple signs. Whenever you entered into a historic district, they would use the temple as that symbol of this is, this is an old area. Uh, there's also the historic cemetery where they use the temple to signify that. Uh, and lastly, about a year ago, uh, the Kirtland High School uh, won a state championship in football, which was a huge deal because they had never been very good at all. Uh, going up into their championship game, the head coach called the site director of the temple and asked if they could use the temple for a, a gathering of the football players and their families. This was the night before the big championship game. Um, kind of odd that a football coach would call the director of a historic church and asked that his football team meet in that historic church, but he saw the connection between the site and the power of place and his community. Um, the site director agreed to it. I don't know if I would have agreed to that, the thought of a pep rally in my historic site, but he uh, had more courage than I did. He agreed to it, and 300 people gathered that day for um, a meeting 
with football players and their families, and it was, a, it was a quiet, very meaningful experience where the players told the students about um, how grateful they are to live in such a community that is this supportive of them. Uh, they went on for about an hour, and as the football players walked out of the temple that night, they were greeted by the, the band who marched them down to the school for a huge pep rally. And for the people at the site, they felt like that was their aha moment, recognizing that it's not just the site of Mormon history for Latter-day Saints to come and enjoy, but it was a place of community history, and it was a connection to the larger story of what is Kirtland. And that's all I have to share. Um, great, the end. All right, so Stacy Klingler, my co-editor in this massive project, is going to take the podium now, who is with the Indiana Historical Society. Let me pull yours up, because I'll... Or you could shut it there. You can. No, you can there. All right, it is the end of a long day, I, and I, I'm tempted to use the tool that I used to use on the seventh graders for my summer programs, which is to make you throw your hands in the air. Hey, I got a taker. No, really, you have been absorbing information all day today. So I don't know, wiggle in your seats a little bit. Just get a little wiggle around, seventh inning stretch. You know, I would sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and my husband would love that I had done that, but I don't really sing. It's really best that I don't. So, um, I'd like to think that I could be a mind reader, and if I were really a mind reader, I would have said, oh yeah, Barbara is going to talk about how valuable visitor studies is when she talks about the development of the visitor center. They did amazing visitor research in order to prepare for that involving their community. That's a lot about what visitor studies is. So since she kind of covered my session already, I thought I would, you know, cover hers. So let me ask you, how many people think that uh, community service is a part of your job description, whether that's a volunteer role or a staff role. How many of you think your boards think that? A little bit here and there. A little bit here and there. I think this is a really important piece of board education. You can get the toolkit, copy the chapter, copy Barbara's chapter, and share it with them and let them see about the value of when the staff invested in the community, when they took their time to invest in the community, see how much came back. It was an investment that they made, and that came back. So just an idea. Uh, no, really, that was, oh, I'm forever causing problems with my computer. I'm standing by. Could you just get that started again? Anyway, um, I like to wander around in this this microphone is attached. Oh, I can't do that. Here, say something. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Um, I don't know why her computer did that, so that's... <laughs> I do sing, but I won't. All right, sorry about that. Um, how many of you have ever done a visitor study? Would you say you've done a visitor study? Just a couple folks. How many of you ever asked a question of a visitor when they were walking through your place? Any question? So you, you've started. So you can now say, if somebody asks you, you've done a visitor study, you say, well, you know, I'm embarking on it. I'm thinking about it. My goal is to help you see visitor studies as something that you can do, something that's a little more approachable, not quite so scary, um, and something that's appealing, something that's useful. And so I have, I've got two kind of things. I'm gonna I've only got two tips. Scott had six. I've only got two. It all balances out in the end. Um, and I'm going to give you a method, a way to get your feet wet in visitor studies. So I call it the three-question method, something you can go home and do right, well, not tomorrow, the next day, maybe Monday, um, when you get back. And then I'm also going to talk a little bit about what I think is the most valuable kind of visitor research, um, which is, I think, the most useful, um, which is front-end or formative or those kinds of questions you ask before you actually create something, rather than asking questions after to see if it was good, asking people before. Um, we are supposed to introduce ourselves, and uh, so I'll tell you my background and why I like visitor studies. I have worked in a lot of small museums. These are all the small museums that I've worked in. I now work in field services, so I work with small museums doing this sort of thing. Um, so I spent, I've spent about 10 years in small museums, but in my previous life, 
I hung out with two-year-olds and studied how they learned prepositions and got a degree in developmental psychology and decided two-year-olds and prepositions was an interest of my life and came to museums because museums are, in fact, interesting enough for the rest of my life. Um, but what I did learn were the tools of social science and the power and the limitations of the tools of social science in that world. So I am hoping to get you today beyond the anecdote. The anecdote is great. It makes a nice story, but it's always nice to back it up with data. Um, and so if you can do a visitor study, you are finding something that might be more compelling to that numbers type of person to make your case. You get beyond the comment card. On the comment card, you hear, you are great! And you hear, the bathroom was dirty. That's what you get. You get the extremes. When you do a visitor study, you ask all sorts of people questions that you actually want the answers to. Um, in a systematic way, and that's what makes it a visitor study. That's what makes it different from walking the floor and just talking with people and asking them questions. You do it in a systematic way, so you get all of the range of opinions, even from the cranky people and the busy people, um, and from the people who don't look like you. Uh, when we approach people and ask them questions, we're much more comfortable talking with people who look like us, whatever that may be. And so when you do it in a systematic way, you'll get something that represents your whole visitor, not just the uh, squeaky wheels or the folks who are particularly friendly. So what is this three-question method? Uh, you have a handout that has the three-question method and all the questions I'm going to talk about, so you don't have to write them down. Um, but it really is very simple. Pick one question to ask before your visitor goes into your site, sort of as you're welcoming them, one question to ask during their visit, and one question to ask as they're on their way out. Three questions. If this seems like too many, pick one. Just one. I want you to go back to your sites and just do at least one question. But I'm going for three. To make it systematic, if you're at a small enough site where you don't have 300 people coming through every day, all you have to do is ask every visitor. You don't have to ask every fourth visitor, every third visitor, every person with a penguin on their coat. You can ask every visitor, and that makes it systematic. You're getting a representative sample by doing that. Ask about 30 people. That's kind of a nice round number and something to aim for to get a reasonable set of things. Figure out a good way to record your answers. On the back of that form are a couple different tally sheets and even a way to do this with a visitor's register. Um, the best way to get information out of people is to have a conversation with them. You can delve a little deeper. You can get a little bit beyond those, those couple questions. But if you really don't have the staffing, the volunteers, or your volunteers are afraid of talking to people, which could be a problem, um, you can actually make these a part of your visitor register, and then they're either all before or all after. After you've recorded the answers, you have to do something beyond that. You actually have to look at the patterns, summarize them in some way, and make a change. If you don't make a change, there was no point in doing the study. Or at least if you know why you're not making a change. Um, that's the whole point in doing this work, is so that we can do what it is we do better. And then go on and ask new questions. You've only asked three. I bet you have a few more. So a couple questions you can think about asking before. You can ask about your marketing. How did you hear about us? You can ask a little bit about who your visitors are. Where are you from? That's sort of a common thing we want to know. If you want to know about other things about them, you can ask those kinds of questions, demographic questions. But that's a pretty common one that folks need to know. And did you come in today to see something in particular? What are we known for? I came in today because it was next to the hardware store. Okay, well, that's good to know. We're not necessarily known for something. So pick one of those questions to ask before. During their visit, assuming this is not a guided tour, um, assuming you've got so something that's self-guided, just ask them this basic customer service question. Do you have any questions? Now, you may find out something about, you, they may say no, which is fine. You may find out something about practical things like seating or signage or restrooms. You may find out that people have particular questions about the kinds of things you're presenting. This is kind of an open-ended way of just getting some ideas about what are the questions you need to be asking in the future. And then after. What did you find most interesting? What, were, what, what are you doing well? What's the compelling stories that you're telling? That's what you can find out with what did you find most interesting and why. Don't forget to ask the why if you can, because that's going to help you make decisions better later. 
what would you like to have learned more about? Where do we, where are our holes? What are the gaps we need to fill? What else are people needing to know? And is there anything in particular you would come back to see? I'm pretty sure they're not going to want to come back to see the thing that they can see in any county museum across the country. They're not going to come back to see the butter churn, most likely, unless you have an amazing story about the butter churn, right? But you may find out that they will come back for something a little more compelling, for something that's more unique. So, and the basics of using this, collect it, set a, set a time period you're going to collect it or a number of responses, and then actually use it. It's really easy to collect data forever and never use it. So put it on your calendar. Say, we're done. Make sure you or somebody else will compile and summarize the data. You've got then another date to review the results, and that you make a change and ask new questions. It's just using it. Get it on your calendar, get it on your radar screen, and you will find that you have more questions that you really want to know about, and now you have a way of doing it. Other easy ways um, to ask questions, uh, I'm going to talk about two methods that Linda Norris uses. She's an exhibit developer from uh, Northeast New York area, uh, and she writes a blog called The Uncatalogued Museum. Has anybody heard of The Uncatalogued Museum? She shares really interesting insights about what she learns, but she does really easy visitor research. Um, she does front-end research. Anybody know what front-end research is? Raise your hand if you know what front-end research is. Not so much. Vocabulary term. I just did front-end research by asking you that question. It's finding out about people's prior knowledge or their interests. It's asking folks about information they need at the beginning of the project. And it's really useful for giving you some direction about where to go. Front-end research is best done someplace other than your museum. You must leave the museum. Yes. It's great to do at public libraries, at grocery stores, at public festivals, school sporting events, where you get people who aren't the normal people who are at your museum. That's an important key. And it would be easy, great if all we could ask is say, okay, we're going to do an exhibit about butter churns. So, hey, Joe, what would you like to know about butter churns? Or what do you already know about butter churns? People don't work so well that way. So having an activity is a good way of approaching this. Um, Linda has done this by having a sorting activity. She was working with a group who was working on developing a tour uh, about an 18th century site. And they wanted to know about visitors' prior knowledge about this area because they thought that um, folks would need, they're going to interact with a first-person interpreter, and folks would need some real background, some real understanding, and they needed to know how much background they needed to provide. So they wanted people to sort historical facts into the categories of happened before 1750 or happened after 1750. People sorted them, and what they found was that people had a lot of misperceptions about kind of when things happened or how they were connected. People did have some knowledge, but they didn't really know how the knowledge was related. So they had to provide a lot more background to prepare people to go into this experience. Now, if they had not done this research, they would have provided detailed information about this particular site, and they would have missed out on the fact that, that, that folks just didn't have the context to understand what they were talking about. Another sorting activity you could do uh, is to see what people are interested in. You could take objects from your collection and let people vote, not actually like move, sort the objects literally. You could take photos of the objects and let them sort those literally, or um, parts from your photograph collection. Uh, Linda did this with um, photos of people working in the carpet industry. And she really thought folks were going to be fascinated by the people stories and, you know, pictures of the actual, like, Carpet weaving, not so much. Totally wrong. People were fascinated by the process. How, I mean, I don't know anything about how carpet is made. That's really interesting. So she changed her tact in the exhibit and made a key element this idea of what the process of carpet making was. And she would have totally left that out because she personally didn't find it interesting. She thought it was boring. And that's one of the things that front-end and formative research really does is brings the visitor back into your consciousness. Once you start researching something, once you really start getting to know something, you forget what it's like not to know that. It's really, really hard to remember. It's like you know exactly the route to get to your museum, but the first time you went there, the first time you went for an interview, you realized, yeah, the signage is not so good, right? It's the same idea with this kind of research. It just brings 
the visitor perspective back to you. So, anybody have any thoughts on how they might use sorting? Could you consider testing out for your next exhibit, your next program, checking out people's prior knowledge, checking out what they're really interested in? Maybe that's a little more than you're really ready for. Maybe you have an exhibit already up and you can just get some feedback about that. And that would be the post-it method. And that's uh, kind of prototyping. My form of prototyping when I was still working in a small museum was called the opening evening. Right? You open up the exhibit, you realize what's wrong, and you try to go back and fix it. Well, when you get your highest attendance for a new exhibit, the opening evening, that's really not a good time to be testing. So let's try to be a little more, be, do better than I did, and uh, try this in your museum. Um, Linda, I, like all my examples are from Linda today. She's working with the Shimung County Historical Society, and she asked them, she's got the post-it note method. She asked them to put out post-it notes and asked the visitors to comment on the current exhibits. They had a whole bunch of different categories. This interests me. I'm confused about this. Why don't you tell the story about this? I've always wondered about, I don't like this because. And this is the kind of things they discovered. Here's a great exhibit on floods. Wait. They had floods. And they were in certain years. That's what this exhibit communicates, right? Somebody wrote, they want to know about what steps have been taken to prevent floods causing such devastation. They want to know kind of who's responsible for these floods. Gave them a sense of where their interpretation could go. If they're going to improve this exhibit, what direction, what tack could they take? People don't want to just know that there was a flood. They want to know something more about it. This was an exhibit they had about Mark Twain, um, who had a summer home in this area. And the yellow tabs there say, oh, this really interests me because I... Didn't know about Twain's connection to Elmira. I, this really interested me because the people in the picture aren't smiling. That was in kids' handwriting. But here was an entry. We're always trying to get kids interested in history, so maybe this is a place where you could explain why there are not smiling people in a picture. There is also the red post-it note. That's, I'm, I confused. It's like, what is this picture about? I don't understand. Your label is not good. And the blue post-it note there is, where are these people from? I want to know more about what's in this picture. So just simply by giving your visitors post-it notes <laughs> and asking them to comment on what you've already got, you're you could gather a great amount of information. Um, even people in big museums can use this. The Corning Glass Museum. They do wonderful things, right? This was a way of the, the, for the exhibit developers to get out of their own heads. They gave kids two colors of post-it notes. Put pink things on things you find interesting and yellow ones on things you're confused about or you don't know why it's there. And the exhibit developers thought, ah, we've got these great pictures of these kids working on banking bottles and they're going to just love, kids are going to connect with that because they're about kids. And none of the kids found it very exciting or very interesting. They were confused about it. What the kids loved was a diagram of a bottle that talked about the head of the bottle, the shoulders of the bottle, the feet of the bottle. That was how they connected. And that was something the exhibit developers kind of just threw in there. But they asked real kids how they connected, and they learned something new. They learned that we don't have to include this boring woodcut in our exhibit. We don't have to make the assumptions that we know what our visitors want. We can ask them, and it doesn't have to be complicated. Post-it notes sorting cards, asking just a couple questions. So the long and the short of it is visitor services can save you time and money because it helps you make the right decisions. If you ask probing questions in a systematic way and you ask all sorts of people those questions, then you will get information that's about your audience. You should keep it simple. Just ask a couple questions. Just use a couple post-it notes. Just sort a couple piles of photos. And once you learn something, make a change. Make it work. Thank you, Stacy. Stacy's will probably be the only one that's recorded. Because <laughs> she knows how to use a mic. Um, so with the remaining time we have, we just have about 10 minutes. We'd love to hear from you. Any questions, any ideas? Um, it's always great to share shortcuts maybe that have worked for you. I'm just trying to give you some seed ideas. But I do want to point out the fact that um, 
what you saw this afternoon were kind of three incongruous things, kind of a mashup of small museum work. So they didn't have a through thread. Um, and I think that is pertinent to think about when you're in the workplace in a small museum and you are frustrated and you can't figure out why you're feeling so frustrated. It's because your brain is being split in a few different directions that you don't normally think about. So the book um, series intends to cover all those directions, but there are certainly times when you're working on a project or learning a new idea that you're just not going to be very comfortable. So hopefully there's a place you can go for some answers, and um, we hope that we've provided that with the toolkit. Having said that, any questions? And what I'll have to do is repeat the question or bring it to or you'll have to come up here because I don't have a long cord. I didn't think that one through. Yes, a question. repeat that question yeah so the question is uh, here's this exhibit that's already up shouldn't we do, shouldn't we be doing this early on yes you can create a much more simple version of your exhibit if you literally are talking about photographs and, and labels you know print out the labels from a word document you know lay it out on a table and ask folks to look at it you don't do that with every element of an exhibit but that's that's really what a prototype is the example I was showing you was a way that this organization said we know we want to change this permanent exhibit how are we going to start gathering information? So the post-it note was a very low-tech, low, they're, they're looking to change the exhibit. They, they, it's 25 years old. It's 25 years old. They're ready, they're ready for something new. Um, but there's no reason why we can't make little pieces of our exhibits and, and test them out with folks. So we can definitely do that. Other questions? Well, it is the end of the day. <laughs> So we're happy to let you go. Um, we do thank you for joining us uh, this afternoon. There are multiple sessions at this annual meeting that are for small museums. I do want to point out tomorrow morning there'll be a session specifically about assessments that are really great for small museums. It's called Your Turn. It's at the second chunk of the morning, the 1045 time period, whatever that is. I'll be part of that one as well, but it will dig deeper into what is MAP, what is STEPS, and what is CAP, which are three different assessment tools that are highlighted in the book series, but it's also relevant to just everyone. Um, so I encourage you to come to that as well as look for other sessions that um, mention Small Museum in the title, because there's so much to learn and we're glad to have you here. Oh, a question in the back. Yes. I'm sorry, what was that? It's called Your Turn, and it's looking at assessments. I think it's like at the 1045, that second block tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. There you go, 155D. All right, well, thank you, and have a good evening.